everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Jess Mastercola. And I'm Mike DiFilippo. And today we're going to talk about a topic that has been coming up um, a lot in the data. Uh, it's been affecting a lot of EMS projects, and that is, are two paramedics better than one? So to start, do we think the two paramedics are better than one? I tend to think yes. It depends. It's a strong answer. It's good. I have a strong one. I'm going to be on the fence on Have the courage of your convictions. I have a better answer. I don't know. Okay, I'll take I don't know. So one of the things that we have to talk about, and we talk a lot about standardization um, and how a system might actually work. So one of the problems in the data with how many paramedics make a good crew complement is that there's actually no single standard for crew complements in EMS. There's a lot of systems that require two medics, but they don't necessarily require them to be on the same vehicle. Um, states like Massachusetts, Wisconsin, and uh, Utah actually require two medics uh, on jobs, but they, did, they don't require they ride together. So okay. this is causing a delayed response. And then there's only two states in the union, um, state of Delaware and our great in state union. of New Jersey. <laughs> hey, like that union. <laughs> and our state of New Jersey that require two medics ride on one unit. Most other states have a one medic response model. So in our experience, um, what do we think about the two medic model in one unit, in one vehicle? Uh, right. No so it's yeah. hard. It's well, because we all come from that system. Yeah, so I was about to say, I don't feel like I know anything else even like I feel like if I went somewhere that was not two medics I'd be very very confused so one of the things and so I, I've had the privilege of working in a two medic system and a one medic system okay. um, one of the things I can say is and I guess one way to phrase the question would be what percent again this is kind of the question that comes up in operational issues too whether or not we need two medics per unit what percentage of jobs do you think you've had that actually required both medics to treat the patient all right, let's think back in my career thus far, and I'm looking at Mike specifically because he was my longest-term partner. I can think of maybe f between five and ten instances in our four years together that both of us like were required sick. to be there. Like, yeah, we're talking like the old where your paramedics are actually needed. They're dead without you kind of thing. Right. Yeah, not to pull up specific jobs, but motorcycle lady mm -hmm. on the opposite side of the highway. She was a very quick, like, yes. we literally pulled up and we were like, we need to go to work. ASAP. Right. Um, that subarachnoid bleed, mm. the rolling RSI. Uh, so there's like a few jobs in like that pump up, like very prominent jobs, like where I could think, thank goodness there was another paramedic there because we got things we had to get done twice as fast if one right. of us were alone. And I can actually think of one job where we had a third medic that was working BLS. And that made all the difference. Yeah. So, so this is kind of the compliment that we tend to see around the country where, the, and again, in our systems, we have two medics that arrive together, but in plenty of other systems, there'll be a second medic who's, you know, the second unit that's due in who will show up somewhat afterward. Um, that's actually how most other states kind of operate. Typically, what will happen is there'll be a medic who will treat the patient, and then their backup partner will come out and will come along. When the patient gets put, moved to the ambulance to be transported, the other medic clears up and then can go on to another job, and then we kind of rinse and repeat with that model. The debate comes up because typically the way that a two-medic system will work is one medic will you know start the paperwork, the other medic starts the primary treatment, and then when the primary treatment is done, the medic who's writing the chart takes over and rides that patient into the hospital. So just like everything else, it comes down to the utility of crew resources. So are we using, are, are, if we're only using two medics in a unit, like are we properly utilizing that amount of paramedics, or can we spread out coverage by splitting the medic crews up? In all honesty, I think you could you could split them and spread them out mm -hmm. because well, I think you can strictly, I mean, strictly but from an operational what's standpoint. the yeah. what are we here here's the thing you know fast cheap good pick two right you mm -hmm. know this is this is a trade-off what do you want your paramedics to be able to do 
What do you expect your paramedics to be able to perform? What role do you want them to play in the healthcare system? If you're in a place where you want very limited care on scene, you want a very limited scope of practice, you don't want a lot of, you know, the she-she stuff, the, the cool stuff, so to speak, yeah, you can probably do it fairly economically. On the other hand, you know, do you want to be prepared for those, you know, those holy shit moments where, you know, it's really bad and you need that partner or you want to do advanced care in the field, like true advanced care, like, you know, RSI right. or, you know, um, some of the other high level stuff that people are doing out there. Um, you know, there are places that mandate that, you know, states aside i mean they mandate they want two medics on a truck and they want them to be able to be redundant and be able as another pair of hands as another pair of eyes checking off you know um drugs and things like that and procedures and you know working you know performing really advanced care on scene um two advanced providers on scene is a big advantage if it's used right sure yeah and Uh, go ahead mike so I think just from my personal experience, um, having worked in a city environment where I had very strong BLS there too, um, I think that's a huge component of this argument that really doesn't get brought up much. I think you can have a single medic response system if you have a very strong BLS base there with you. Like, if I don't have to, if I automatically trust my BLS partner that they know the ins and outs of BLS. And even from just experience, some of the stuff that I'm going to do, like they're already anticipating my next step or they're no, they know what goes on during an RSI or, or whatever. I think that completely changes the name of the game as opposed to just having one medic and, you know, some areas of our response, some of our BLS, not that they're not great, but they may only do 30 runs a year hmm. and right. they may not know. Like they right. could literally go years without seeing a patient intubated, whereas you have, you know, a city BLS person who's their full time job and they're running 100 jobs a, a week no exaggeration, like they see a lot of stuff and they know uh, what happens on routine ALS jobs or even bad ALS jobs and they, they become a great resource. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the stance of business, <coughs> strictly speaking business, like the like idea of... The money. The money. So if you have two medics on a truck and one of them is getting information and one of them is doing the treatment... I feel like as far as a business standpoint, it doesn't make sense because why are you using what's supposed to be a fairly highly trained professional to gather information that your BLS can do, right? So in, in theory... Or police officer or family member. A police member. officer, like a BLS provider on scene, a family member. Why is one of your trained professionals writing a chart in the beginning and then taking over care? Why not just have the one person... Then I don't agree with this. I think that... To, I personally think two is a much better ratio than having one. But I think from a business standpoint, it does make sense to split those medics because I do think it sometimes can be a waste of resources. So let's talk about that money aspect a little bit. So (coughs) generally speaking, and we're going to start throwing some numbers out. uh, If there's one paramedic on a unit, the average per annum per annum cost uh, over the year is going to be $347,000. You know what's funny about that? hmm. Three of that is the salary for the medic, $3. Right, but that's that's the point, right? <laughs> three, so whole it's, it's three, whole three whole dollars. Three whole dollars, and that's Jersey money. That's whoa. so, but that's yeah. but that's the thing. That's that's salary benefits and all that type of stuff. Three hundred operational cost of that unit. Right for one for one medic for one year, three hundred forty seven thousand okay. dollars. Now, if you have a unit that has one medic and one EMT, it's about six hundred twenty thousand dollars, and you have two medics on a unit, it's six hundred ninety five thousand dollars. 
So if you're just looking at, and I, I have my own personal problems with you know the bottom line and money being factored into healthcare costs, mm. but that's the reality that we're living in. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at just financials, obviously just having the one medic on the one unit makes, go- more, it sense. makes more financial sense, right. and you could theoretically put more people on right. to do that. But Mo- here's like the thing: the like I think from a business standpoint, someone would look and say, "Well, why are we staffing with?" two people just in case that one person's really sick and they need two people right as opposed to staffing with one person spraying it out more and helping more people that's i'm just saying this is what uh, a no, lot of no, I know. Company, that, yeah. and that's what no, most of the bean counters will tell I you right, i agree that's a, a valid point but mm-hmm. my argument back to that is and i'm not i actually agree with you mm-hmm. but my argument back to that is that's that's the whole predication of emergency services right like we, we, well, exactly we are staffed here for that one instance that may not happen Correct. for months oh sure but we're here when it happens. Oh, sure. But so then there are going to be people who say, well, why are we staffing it for that one person that might happen as opposed to staffing it to help multiple people that are definitely going to be happening? So that's how, <coughs> do you, how would you actually quantify, you know, the amount of emergency? Because we all say like, well, you know, just in case. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why you always want to have that second. Oh, sure. Theoretically, anybody can go down the toilet at any given instance. Right. Sure. So surely there has to be data to back this up. Right. And as luck would have it in 1999. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, there was the, the Opal study came out for cardiac arrest survivability. What this kind of showed was that there was no real difference with one medic and one EMT versus two medics, right? So one of the problems with the Opal study was that it was a trauma study, right? So oh, it was trauma okay. only. So, it's, oh. it's, so then this is just the 1999 okay. Opal study. So in a trauma study, there's no difference between a one medic, one EMT team and a two medic team. So what are some of the... I'll the buy that. All right. So, what what are some of the hangups that we have on that? Why? What do you think? Does that like does that? Because trauma is not a difficult disease. Mm. It's not right. a complicated s- syndrome. Stop the bleeding. Oxygenate if needed. Get Protect access if you can. Protect the airway if you must. Mm-hmm. And go to take them to a surgeon. Outside mm-hmm. of a handful of procedures, every trauma patient needs the same thing, and mm-hmm. that's a surgeon ASAP. Right. Like unless they need like a field, you know decompression well you, you need to deliver the, the, right and this is the thing that i have in my place because you know we're a trauma center and you know we you know sometimes i get into discussions with people and they're like they need to get to the trauma center you're absolutely right they also need to get there alive right so things with an like airway bleeding and, control you know. <laughs> airway management those things are important <clears throat> iv access or io access so that we can get blood on board as fast as humanly possible yeah, so that we're not struggling at the trauma center to get an IV on someone who's already lost so much blood volume that because you didn't get it in the field. That so those, said, are, though, right? so those, are, those are viable options. Yeah, I've seen more sure. dual medics, dual medic units on a trauma hold up moving to the trauma center, though, just to get the IV or really? to intubate. Oh, yeah. That's mm-hmm. Then that was a big problem that shows <laughs> up in a lot of studies of that saying more medics is bad because they spend more time. Um, I can't remember the name of a specific study off the top of my hip. I'm sure Ed does, where it showed strokes. We say this and Dan reaches for the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> the so only no, one we had a positive outcome with more medics was, or having medic actually ALS interventions was STEMIs, just but that's for 12 lead interpretation and activation of the cath lab. But CVAs and traumas, having ALS actually slowed down how long it took to get the patient to the hospital. Mm. So if you're sitting there fussing around trying to get an IV, there's a whole bunch of confounders in that, and there, I don't think we've studied there, why that actually there happens. is there is. But no, the and I think a lot of this is just us there. talking anecdotally. Mm. Sure. And I can say anecdotally, I've I've sat there with some people, especially when I was a new medic and I had a more senior partner, that you're a little afraid to say, "Hey, let's get moving," 
and they sit there for five minutes to get an IV on somebody. You're like five minutes. Oh, that's generous. Come on. Well, but also, but that that comes down to the, five minutes feels like that comes down to like the culture and the education argument too. Can we can we just all agree that pre-hospital IVs are like a courtesy at best? Unless you're going to push meds, well, sure. unless it, you're going to mm-hmm. push meds, right? Or you're going to do an RSI or something that absolutely has to be done. If they're that dirt sick, like just put an IO in. Well, but that's but that's one thing. Stop, that, but that stop becomes, the shenanigans. That kind of contributes yeah, to the crux of this debate, though. Yeah. Right. If there's plenty of patients that become ALS patients just by the nature of them having an IV in, right? So if you're running with a one medic and say an EMTI, you know what makes them an ALS patient is that they have an IV in. Mm-hmm. So that patient got upgraded because. They have, they have a like tiny little tube in their vein. piece of plastic in their arm. Well, I mean, we're talking about just trauma right now. I mean, there's a huge city located very near to us that doesn't dispatch any ALS for traumas because mm. it's just easier for them to yeah. do that. That's true. And I think that works pretty well for them. So, I mean, I think trauma is a tough discussion to have in total. Um, I, I like that. I, listen, I, 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 you know, same you know, my place has a lot of penetrating trauma, a lot of things like, you know, a lot of trauma. And I would say probably three quarters of it doesn't need a paramedic as no. long if the, the caveat being, are your EMTs doing bleeding control? Are they doing adequate assessments? Do they have right. a coherent report when they get to the hospital? And if they're doing bleeding control, are they doing it correctly? Correct. In the right. first place? Absolutely. <clears throat> if you're not doing that. Yeah, that paramedic's going to be more important because first thing that they're going to do is check the work of the of the EMTs. Mm-hmm. Right. So and one of the things, and you know, this tends to kind of pan out with the data too. So there was another Opal study in 2004 that showed that regard the number of medics didn't actually change the survival to discharge, right? Which is kind of the whole point of what we're doing. The problem with these studies is that there's no randomization and there's no blinding because that's almost impossible to do right. with this type of data. But set. I think you could argue that with anything in medicine. I think if you have 15 doctors standing around a patient, guess what? That patient ain't getting better. Yeah, well, it's, it's the too many right. cooks thing. So mm-hmm. in 2005, there's an article that came out in the USA Today, and this this kind of talks about the trauma thing, where with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the survival of the discharge might actually be more of a matter of geography, more so than the amount of people you have on the ambulance. Well, yeah, if you die so, in Seattle where there's an AED on every corner. Right. Right, your your odds are by default are better. Well, it's not only that. Yeah. Seattle. First of all, let's let's point out that Seattle Fire has a fantastic ALS system. Right, and there okay. and the, the city of Seattle, as much as I I like using them as an example for a lot of things, is an absolute outlier. Oh, there's what, oh, what in sure. regardless of what you're talking Dude. about, they're always going to be the best system. Shout out to Seattle and all of our listeners of Washington State. But in general, if you're if you go into cardiac arrest out of the hospital. A lot of it has to just tends to deal with where you are and not so much who you're dealing with, because we know that what saves lives in cardiac arrest is early CPR, early defibrillation, right? So if you arrest in an airport, you've got a same thing for in, in hospital, mm-hmm. right? Right, exactly. So, but again, it's one of the things that we pride ourselves on working as medics pre-hospitally is when the argument comes up, why do you need two medics, right? It's going to be well if we have a cardiac arrest, one of them has to intubate, the other one has to give meds, right? But is that actually a valid argument? But do I they? think that's a shallow argument. I think that's. I but think why that's do you need two people for that? You can't push the meds well, and then go intubate. There's a whole. There's a whole lot of. Why, things if that you're come a student, we make you do it on every car. <laughs> right, if you're a student, you do it by yourself, right? <laughs> right. Well, so but this, but this is the other thing with the, with as as more data gotta, comes out, gotta maximize that educational yeah. value. <laughs> as more data comes out, though, we find out that intubation might not actually be better for cardiac arrest not for survival really. district. Right, isn't I mean, it more superglottic? Airways. Yeah, super uh, superglottic airways are easy to place. Right, right. They're they're almost idiot proof. And then and you, you can always upgrade to an ET tube. Yeah, I'm on. gonna listen. I'm gonna I'm mm-hmm. gonna argue that I, I still think 
I don't think the data is there yet, but I think that if you can put an endotracheal tube in first pass without interrupting compressions, you're probably doing a little bit better for your patient than a superglottic. Oh, sure. well, the reason why superglottics are doing better is because you've all, you've got everybody. And listen, it's not a paramedic thing. Don't all jump on me. You know, I'm I'm not anti-medic <laughs> or anti-intubation and cardiac arrest. But we all get those people. Uh, hold on, compressions. I'm almost there. Mm-hmm. I can see it. Uh, maybe well, those are but, the cords. So, but that actually that's that's what I'm talking about. Where it's possible that we have providers that are taking too long to intubate and are stopping compressions for too long to try and get the tube yeah. for our pride. You shouldn't stop compressions more so than Oh, it's not possible. Scale. It is absolutely happening. Right. Oh, that happens. But that's what I'm saying with a superglottic, whether you're using something like an eye gel or if you're using a king tube, you don't actually have to stop compressions. You can just drop the tube right in, and there's at least theoretical data that that would improve outcomes because you're not stopping CPR. Right, but, but, I think I, right but I'm going to argue that I think the data, you're getting that data because... You're not stopping compressions. I think if you, yeah. st- I think right. if I think if we did a study and we did a randomized controlled trial, we randomized two: one arm being endotracheal intubation, one arm being superglottics with no interruptions of compressions at all. I think you'd see the same. But I think to get back on you track, might even I think that just comes down. Better. That comes down to the individual medic. Like I know when Kevin and I were partners, for instance, we'd call each other out if we were taking too long. Right. Be like time to pull out and you know reoxygenate whatever else. Right. So I think if you're talking about going to a one medic system, you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to have some crappy medics out there. But this with is no backup. And but that's, the, that's but the, the point would be if you have someone, if you're working in a system where there's one medic and a X amount of EMTs, if you're in a cardiac arrest scenario, you can have the EMT drop a superglottic without worrying about interrupting compressions because right. the only people that actually interrupt compressions to control an airway are medics. Yeah. yeah. So that's right. Or, the best. <laughs> or, or anesthesiologists. Right. Oh, that yeah. too. <laughs> so, but yeah. that's, but that's the yeah. Thing, let's not that, let's not go there. And, and again, <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to come across as anti two medics. I actually prefer that system over working in a one medic system. What I'm saying is though, if the argument has to be, do we continue working as with two medics on a truck, or is it superior to have a one medic system? I think there was a time that we had a, a fairly compelling argument, but we're starting to lose those arguments. Yeah, well, that's I can, possible. I can see that. That's that's definitely possible. I think it's just hard to discuss because there's not a lot of hard data to look sure. at, and, it, sure. and for for most people, it, it's a comfort thing. Like, how comfortable are you I to work alone? I I or think it goes back to what you said. If the strength of the BLS is going to make a difference of whether or not a single medic can work, if you have BLS doing proper, efficient BLS, right. The medic's job, in a lot of instances, is most of it's taken care of. For I'm going to agree 100. percent I'm going to I'm going to take it a step further. I'm like gonna why say are that medics getting information if BLS shows up first? I, I'm in favor of the one medic one scribe system. <laughs> <laughs> just give me a scribe every call, and I'll run 30 jobs a day. I don't care. I just don't want to write <laughs> just, a chart. I don't want to write the charts. I'll, I'll see 30 patients a day. Just <laughs> I'll treat them all <laughs> soups to nuts right I'm all the way through. I'm done doing well, flowcharts. Alexa, the, write my chart but, for me. But here's are the we point. discussing this though, assuming that the BLS is adequate? Is that what we're saying? Oh, Oh, because yeah, that's a big question. Because well, there are issues in our area where BLS isn't guaranteed to show well, up. Well, I don't think right? even our area. Look back to the rural medicine no, podcast we did. Right. You know, it's mm-hmm. more spread out. It's uh, right. EMS. So is this assuming that There's a your huge BLS is varia- definitely right. showing There's up? There's a huge variability in mm-hmm. your EMT level, and we need to tighten that up. I think Absolutely. I think we need to realize as paramedics, and this is something we kind of get snobby sometimes that we're better than EMTs. Sometimes. I think we need to realize <laughs> that. No, it's for real. It's a problem that we yeah, have. Is that EMTs are the foundation of everything we do. Oh, absolutely. It's the foundation and of what we do. Yeah. And 
you know, they are by having excellent EMTs, you're going to have better care. Mm-hmm. Of course. Right. You know, but because they're the first ones on the scene, they're the first ones to initiate things. They're the first ones that can start the care cascade down to where we can actually pick up the ball and run with it. It is a team effort here. The problem is, is that's not what we see. But and that's kind of the thing, I think, to back to Justin's point, where you're talking about the having the EMTs on scene. If you're and obviously there's no, you know, broad catch all answer to this because it has to be project specific depending on where you are. So if you're working in a system that has an EMS like an EMT uh, contingent that doesn't respond to calls, then, of course, the answer is going to be that you need to have more medics Mm -hmm. because you're going to have to have people answer the calls. Right. So I, I don't think this conversation has to be, you know, is there an absolute answer? Right. There's always going to be variables. I think another option we haven't discussed yet that I actually like is one of my good friends works in a system where he they do fire response to almost every EMS job. Boo! So you, when you say mm-hmm. fire response, you mean just like big red trucks screaming? Three yeah. 360 degrees of red well, light the, fury? The big red trucks have to eat first and the ambulances have to wait <laughs> their turn. Oh, OK. Um, <laughs> I don't know. So, but, you know, in, in the system he works in, he actually likes it because the... He's the medic. Well, he is the medic, yeah. But, uh, you know, every engine that responds out has at least one medic. And then they decide if the transport unit is going to be a BLS or an ALS job. And on the transport unit, there's always at least one medic coming. So, and that's a volunteer medic sometimes. Right. It's a career medic sometimes. What? Vol- what? Yeah, I know. I can't, I can't wrap my head... To those of you who are volunteer paramedics that are listening to this, my hat's off to you because I can't imagine doing all that school just to volunteer. No, I'm just going to say, why are you giving away the milk for free, man? Yeah. (laughs) You spent a lot of time getting there. I don't know. I can't imagine spending two years of my life getting here. I can't imagine doing it for free. Is that, is this, why does it sound so foreign well, to me? Let's not get into the woes. Let's not get into the woes. That's, the woes we, that's a no, whole other that's different a, issue. But that, that's a that's a cultural debate where right. we we tend to we were brought up in a system where you don't do it for free. Mm. The the in our area the idea of volunteer paramedic is actually very alien, but it's something that exists. I mean Maryland has a pretty strong volunteer paramedic contingent. That's the state I'm talking. <laughs> but you know, there's but there's other but but volunteerism exists at every level of healthcare. I mean, you can make the same argument like there's physicians that do you know pro bono work for you know pro, pro bono. bono. <laughs> pro bono but is one thing. Doing it, you know, you do pro bono. You spend a, like a couple of days, a weekend out of your year doing for free at a walk-in clinic. Volunteers are volunteer ALS sounds like you're doing this like one shift a week. Uh, I mean, there are some not to get too lost in a side argument, but I mean, like Doctors Without Borders is a six month commitment sometimes, and that's free. right. You're paid. That's volunteer. Doctors Without that's... Borders who do not accept paramedics. Because yeah, that's a Doctors Without Borders. They don't. That's it. We're gonna start. No, no, should, we don't. should start at Paramedics Without Borders. We'll do it. There are there, there are places. There is a similar thing that used to be. I'll keep I, it's just a thing with me. I I always want to do that. Right. You know. Interesting. So, but that's the thing is that, like, and, and again, not to get because my that, but, my wife know. likes it when I say "médecin sans frontières." Oh. <laughs> I think she also likes the word Noel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, it's Christmas time, and I'm surrounded by about 80 pieces of furniture that say Noel on it. <laughs> we are, hey, we Jen. are, we are surrounded by it. So, but this is the thing, right? So, if we have systems, getting back to Mike's point, where you have multiple medics responding at the same time, because there's there's a lot of urban systems that work in the Chicago is a similar model where they'll have many medics respond. So if the answer isn't, you know, that two medics are great, sometimes you'll have three, four, or five medics, which can also just exacerbate the problem. That sounds worse. That sounds right. terrible. Sure. So the problem I've heard in Seven those systems... Seven people all with their own imp- 
their own with their own opinion more and then adding a rank structure and seniority and i get the tube because i've been here the longest no it's a true paramilitary system and they just pull rank and they say you know it may be to the six out of seven medics they're a clear-cut copd patient number seven thinks it's a chf patient he's the highest ranking he says i'm pulling rank we're treating this as a chf you're treating it as a chf wow well, and so there's there's operational concerns in this too, right? If you're working a system where there's a multiple medic response, the idea like so you need to intubate people. What we said on a previous episode, something like 50 times a year to actually maintain competence. Yeah, right. Yes. Something like no that, one yeah. does that, right? On average, people in the United States intubate twice a year. I, I got a problem with that number, but okay. But but even then, uh, on average, in the United States, the param- a paramedic intubates twice. I think a you year. probably have to touch a laryngoscope at least 50 times a year. Sure. Oh, I, I think that 50 is a low number. But what I'm saying is if on average a paramedic in the United States intubates twice a year and you work in a system that has a multiple, multiple medic response model, you're going to intubate less than that, right? Mm -hmm. So if what we're concerned about is maintenance of skill and you work in a system where you're not allowed to use your skills, there's operational problems with that because now you have people who they may have been overtrained in school, but they're undertrained when they're actually out in the field. So you have to increase their competencies, which is going to be an increased training component, which costs more money. Mm -hmm. So then what's the perfect amount of medics? Two, one, uh, three, one or, three or less. Point five. I, I think two. I think <laughs> any time. One half of a medic. I can so think uh, back to. Yeah. That, no, that's I, exactly I, what I'm saying. Honestly, I can think back to any call I've been on, and I can say that as the number of medics got over two, it got incrementally worse. Right. And that includes fl- flight crews, you know, because then all of a sudden, you know, no offense, Kevin, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with my patient. Now you come in. You know, and you come in with your cool flight suit and your helmet and your NVGs and all this stuff. And, and, you're, to, and to be fair, and now, hand out to and now all of a sudden, I got to sell you on what we're doing. And if you want to do something different, now it's a now it's a big measuring contest between the ground guys and the flight guys. And well, but but I don't know what flight crews you deal with, but I walk on. What'd you do? What do you need to do still? Okay, great. What <laughs> then? I'm gone. I'm in and out as quick as I can. I on my chart it says. Maintain a continued modality of care as initiated by ground EMS team. But there's a different issue that goes along with that, too, where you'll have ground medics that will delay care waiting for a flight team to come mm-hmm. in. Also true. True. Mm-hmm. So if that's, again, if that's a I'll secondary that problem, th- where like that, that's, that's not just supporting that two medics is too many medics. That's supporting that one medic is superior because you'll just have one medic come in and do all the medic stuff. Well, that's almost like pulling rank. The flight medic shows up and you're like, oh, the flight medic's here. Let's do what he or she says, which I don't personally agree with because I know less about this patient walking in the ambulance than you have in your five minutes with them performing treatment. I'm relying on you to tell me what I need to know, and then I'm going to either continue that or take it to the next step because it's a f- maybe something you can't perform or maybe it's an exceedingly difficult airway and, hey, I have a couple, well, maybe not at your shop, but at the shop where I'm at, I got a few more tools to use than my ground component does to no, establish an airway. So I, I actually have a question for you, Jess, because as, as I'm mulling this over, I like to make a lot of comparisons. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was, try- <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to find any articles on specifically just to emergencies or trauma, what the perfect physician to patient ratio is or the perfect nurse to r- patient ratio is in dealing with, you know, a sick patient. And I, I couldn't find any literature on that. So, you know, just anecdotally thinking, whenever there's more than I would even say two or three doctors in a room, it's it's mayhem because 
again, too many cooks in the kitchen. So is it a similar thing with nursing? Like too many yeah. nurses? Oh. One, uh, of so the, one of these days we're going to create an Instagram account just for Jessica's reaction faces to everything we talk <laughs> oh, about. <laughs> the side eyes are just like well, epic. There Try are times where sometimes even having a single doctor in the room is too much because sometimes it's something that can be nurse driven. You don't even need a doctor, right? And then there are times where <laughs> there's a doctor in the room, the primary nurse is in the room, and then people think they're helping and other nurses come along and go, oh, let me do this. And then no one's actually directing the team, like just like an ACLS when we, you, you watch that video and there has to be a team leader. There's no team leader, right? So you end up having people scrambling all over and it just becomes a mess. And I think that ideally a single doctor, a head nurse which should be the nurse taking care of said patient and then maybe an ancillary nurse that you can do you can direct other things to and then a tech or two that sounds like a good ratio to me in an emergency situation right and if you need more hands you ask for more hands are you talking like sickest of like sick patients or like you're I'm yeah. talking about like they're circling the drain and you need intervention done immediately so I actually think as you like were talking I was coming to the conclusion correct me if I'm wrong I think what we are getting down to here is that Everyone should have a defined role. And I think right. when you have too many people... No matter where you are in medicine. Right. Yeah. And I think yeah, when I you have too many that. people there, you know, even two medics on a job and only one medic is doing a defined role, the other one just kind of becomes like just... You become a... a scribe. Yeah, a scribe. A scribe or, or wasted space. an equipment runner, which is fine, but right. a BLS can do that. Or so someone that who just starts Well, there's also the yeah. thing that, you know, we... Nature abhors a vacuum, which is not necessarily true, but we hate vacuums. Any, we are all type A people. So if we come into the scenario and we sense that someone's not the boss, right. we want to become the boss. So that might actually be more the debate that we're having. Where how much so and it, there it's really difficult to study intangibles, right? Mm. So how much of the problems with multiple medics or multiple EMTs is more ego driven than it is you know, skills or, or practice I think that's driven. just everyday life. Oh, even I think all about that, medicine. It's all about that big dick energy, right? Yeah. <laughs> BDE. Yeah. BDE. Um, but I, the way I see it is, I, I think can't. that's a good shirt. <laughs> good you know, meme. There have been times where, when I was still, when I was on BLS, and I've had, you know, Mike and Kevin as my ALS crew, and I remember being afterward, like thinking afterwards, like, why won't these guys stop holding hands? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, man, why are these? No, I, I remember thinking, you know, why is it that they're they show up? One is sitting on the computer taking information that I've already gotten. And then one is doing the interventions, and then all of a sudden, the one who just did all the interventions and knows the patient a little better is exiting the right. ambulance. And now mm. this person who was typing the whole time well, that's is coming all, around that's the side. That's also program specific. Yeah. Right. If you go right. other places, right. they don't do it that no. way. No, yeah. and so I always argued with Kevin about this. I was like, that makes no There's sense. All if sorts I do of an intervention, this is now my patient. two medic teams operate. Right. right. So as but that kind of happens in the ER, too. Like There have been okay. times where... Someone says, "Oh, I'm I'm dropping this uh, patient in your room. I'll do the triage for you." And I'm like, "But oh. I want to do the triage because I want to hear what this patient has to say and why they're here and how they got here." And so one of the one of the variables might be important to introduce then to kind of re reduce this problem would be if there was some type of like universal charting system, mm -hmm. right? Which is all, free market economics says that it's almost impossible to do, right? Right. But if you're working in a project and you have someone whose job it is to you know essentially be the scribe, you can reduce that role. By having you know compatibility between projects and like their information mm -hmm. systems, which I think to an extent is kind of difficult to do because it comes up where you know people are always worried about HIPAA and hacks and whatever right. else. So if your role 
in your, in patient care is there's one person who's providing care for the patient, the other one operate operationally acts as a scribe, that reduces that. So mm-hmm. then, is there a role now for that second person? No. Right. So that so this that, point blank no. Yeah. No. And I I agree right. with you, but that's kind of where we get into this problem where it's like, well, now if that person doesn't have a role. Their, where's their, their, job their only role is in case the medic treating either can't perform a, an intervention effectively right. or they don't know what's going on. They need someone to kick an idea back and forth with. But then, yeah, but but then you have you online, have medical, medical, control. Exactly, say, online you have medical control. Online medical control. <laughs> like when I don't know what I'm doing. I you just have, walk out of the room and get the doctor. Yeah, like there's an argument you. for that. Okay. There is an argument for redundancy. To have that extra pair of eyes, extra pair of ears, especially when you're dealing with a situation where... You know, not two. We're looking at this as two paramedics, equal experience, equal time on the road. What about when you have a brand new medic? What if what when you have somebody who the ink is still wet on their on their license? That's a whole new. So you I, know, that's a very well, important role. I know well, we've talked about this. I think off air. I know I've spoken to Jess about this person right. because, like, we. So for a new nurse, how long did you have to spend in your residency program, your internship, uh, preceptorship? Six months. How long does it take for, how long, Danny, how long do you and I have together? Three months. Three months. Three months. And And you're you're honestly a lot more independent than I am. My my first partner when I was, when I was a new medic, my first partner was also a new medic. What? I was supposed to have, we were, we were a trial. Yeah. May Um, he rest in peace. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> um, oh wow. Uh, anyway, uh, he was supposed <laughs> to have like four weeks of orientation. I know. We'll, we'll uh, discuss it later. Uh, yeah, we'll he was supposed mind. to have like four weeks of orientation, and uh, there were just so many sh- uh, unfilled shifts at the company. They were just like, eh, never mind. You two are working together now. Oh, boy. So, but this is another type of, again, a, an intangible where you have your ideal world where, you know, okay, so you're going to ride for three or six months with a preceptor and you'll be fully trained or you'll ride as a third or whatever else. But the reality exists where we have, you know, positions and projects where it's like, we need people on the road. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. So does it come down to like, all right, so you have a two medic system, but y- if you're brand new, you have to ride with someone who's been a medic for X amount of years for X amount of time. Right. So what I was getting into with Jess was if we were in a one medic system, how long is it going to take for that new medic to become proficient enough to be by themselves. I don't right. know. I'm by myself. So par- as a nurse, like I, don't I know, but that was six months, right? And a pretty intensive residency program. Sure. S- so there's a lot of overlap between paramedic and nursing, but I would say there's more so between paramedic and physician. Mm. And I would I would say I, w- I think if it would go to a single medic system, it have to mimic residency training like a physician. A couple yeah. years. So no, I, mean, I would well, say maybe. I don't know if it needs to be a couple years. It definitely needs to be some time. Time and. You know, same thing with and physicians. Like a lot of people don't know, we have to do. You know, in maybe our not a set in stone amount of time because right. my residency program was on paper six months. However, they tried taking me off of it at the four month mark, and I advocated for myself and said no. And at the end of the day, they said to me, "If you feel like you need past six months, just tell us, mm-hmm. right. and we will work with you." So maybe like six months is the benchmark. So or the, the goal? I think it should be variable on a system you're working in. If right. you're in a high-volume system where your ALS unit is running 12, it's 18 not, jobs a day. It's not going to take nearly as long to be right. proficient. Yeah. So but that's something that you'd have, to, you'd have to establish some I type of competency. I don't know if I agree with that. But you'd have to establish some kind of competency for that, too. A national right. standard. Yeah. So, right. But, uh, but uh, the national standard debate notwithstanding, you'd have to say, like, all right, a new medic gets on the truck with someone who's been experienced, and we're going to put them into, you know, the equivalency of a, the equivalence of a residency. 
right? There has to be something that's in place to test them out. Right. So the question, right. again, it comes down to how do you formulate that exam? Is it just a written exam or is there a practical? What scores do they have to get? And like you can use the analogy of like step, you know, step one, uh, step two and step three. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. how do you actually formulate that? And what and again, it comes down to we have to establish what makes or how do we define a competent medic? Well, Dan's our long running uh, preceptor and clinical coordinator in a room. Let's have a listen to what he has to say. This is, I mean, I have some beliefs. I, I don't think two new medics should be put together at all. I think that's a recipe for disaster. Um, I think if you're going to train a brand new paramedic, I think they should be with somebody who's experienced. But I also think that we should be tailoring that to people who are truly experienced. Not, you know, make it 10 years of real experience, not one year repeated 10 times. Right. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I I think that in certain instances, in certain areas, I think a one medic, one EMT system works well. Uh, I think it can do it. I think you have to realize that you're going to be trading clinical skills and you're going to be trading a lot of uh, maybe what you would do as an advanced unit. Um, I absolutely 1000% believe that if you're going to do that, if you're going to go one and one that there needs to be an experienced paramedic in a field unit that's on the road, that's able to respond to those hot calls, to those calls where you're going to need that backup and they should be cleared to Mm self-dispatch. Like if they know that there's a crew out and they, they hear something, they don't sound right, or they recognize the address as a problem, they should be able to put themselves on the assignment and go back them up. Kind of how our EMS physicians do here. Correct. Like right. they'll just right. listen yeah. and if it's a good job or not a good job, but if it's a job they think they can do some help at, they'll go. Yeah. So I, I will say there's going to be a variable to that that's really difficult to control for. If you have someone who's been in the field for a very long time, mm-hmm. the risk of them being burnt out exponentially grows. Absolutely. So I my concern to that was that there's a potential that you have someone who's been in the field for 15 years and just doesn't want to answer calls anymore. That's, that's a problem. Paycheck. That's a real problem. And those are the people you have to keep away from those new medics. Right. Mm. Well, so I, I, don't, I don't disagree, but I'm saying if we're going along with that fly car system where you have someone who self-dispatches, I, I worry about the potential for someone. Because, again, if, if the, the prerequisite is experience, I, wor- I worry that you have someone who's been in the field for a long time. Experience is one thing. Clinical competence, right. uh, performance, QA, QI. There's a lot of factors that you can put into. We know who the excellent paramedics are. Mm-hmm. We just don't quantify it. And experience has a role. So does clinical skill has a role. So does the ability to talk to people have a role. We have to, for those people in those single units, you have to be able to hit all those elements. You know, you don't just don't, you you just don't get that because you're a 20 year medic. Right. You get that because you're a 20 year medic and you're actively teaching and you care and you're showing up on scenes and you're clinically competent, and your charting is good, and you're an example, and all that. Man, that's a lot for one. How many of those people do you think you have in your project right now? <laughs> I got enough to staff a single unit. Oh, good. Well, so but, but again, that's, that's, that's... A one-medic unit I, or a two-medic unit? <laughs> no, a, a, a fly car. I could, do I could do it with the people I have, yeah. I, I think some, uh, some others wouldn't like who I would pick. Well, yeah, that's that's, well, that's sure, because and they're that would be a ten. Mm-hmm. And remember, that's not a permanent assignment. That would be like, look, you, you get rotate this. This through is that. this yeah. is a privilege. Yeah, you know, getting single status would be a would be a privilege in in this. And you know, how do you get that? You prove yourself. 
You keep proving. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are places that will have, you know, a supervisor riding as, you know, kind of like a, a, mm-hmm. a what we're talking medic. about, like, like right. a float medic um, that can add to it. And there's plenty of projects that have, you know, one medic riding um, or one medic on a fire apparatus, and then other medics will come in and join. The debate isn't so much, and we, we kind of got away from it, which is fine, but the debate isn't so much, you know, do we just need one medic in a vehicle? It's, uh, is there, you know, improved outcomes to the amount of medics that are on scene, and do we need more of them? Now, mm-hmm. one of the things that we're talking about, like, there, there is an absence of evidence for more medics, but that's not absence evidence of evidence right. is not evidence of absence. Correct. So that's right. why, like, I think this conversation is important because and that's it, why one of the and that's why we that, argue. One we of the first things study that, like, it. but one of the first right. things that always comes up though is finance, right? So if you're a project and you're hurting for money, you're always going to say we have to cut medics, and there's no evidence that more medics is better. Thus, we are going to cut medics. Right. So how? But we're also not looking on the other side of that. Right. We're also not looking at what is the benefit of good ALS care on outcomes, on length of stay, on length of acuity, on the things that we don't measure right now. And you know what? Nobody's measuring it. Maybe one or two places are actually looking at this, Mm -hmm. and we have to start. That's not enough for a consensus, one or two places. Right. Well, of course. We have to start. And this is kind of the thing. This is why I think the conversation is important. Having an actual consensus is going to be almost impossible. Right, because what what works in Los Angeles County is not going to work in Nebraska. What works in New Jersey is not necessarily going to work in Miami Dade. Right, so there, no, there has the, to be. But the baseline standards will. To an extent, yeah, sure. Good mm-hmm. care, evidence based care. You know, good quality assurance, good training, education. Those things translate everywhere. Right. So if we want to actually try and put together some kind of data set. To figure this out, how would we try and pursue that? Do you think? I think you'd have to look at the stuff that people care about, or not care about, but the stuff that matters. Like Dan was kind of saying, you know, you have to run a. So if I were to design the study, I would have dual medic units, single medic units, no medic units, so just BLS only, and then kind of vary up what type of jobs they respond to. So, you know, on Mondays, any asthmatic will just get a BLS only. On Tuesdays, an asthmatic will get a dual BLS. On Wednesdays, an asthmatic will get a single ALS, single BLS. And then over time, you just track the outcomes of those asthmatics and say, oh, I'm just using that as an example, but, you know, which one had the decreased length of stay? Which one had decreased intubation rates? Which one had, you know, better longevity and outcomes, less mortality, morbidity? And, you know, that that's a mighty task to take, though. Right, and that's one of the problems that, and again, we talk about the absence of evidence for it, is that trying to sell a system or a town that you're going to change the response model to find out how to provide better care by reducing care by default is almost impossible to do. I think you could study it from other aspects too. I think you could look at, you know, similar populations, similar size organizations, one with a one-on-one system, one with a two medic system. And then you could look at certain targeted endpoints and you could study certain conditions. Um, you know, like you look at CHF, you look at asthma, you look at anaphylaxis. You know, don't look at trauma. Don't look at out of hospital cardiac right. arrest because, yeah. I mean, look, we, too we, many variables. We've beaten little, those yep. to death. Yeah. Too, it's not going to work. And then look at how long do the people stay in the hospital? Right. How long do they spend in ICU? One, how long one, do they spend on a ventilator? One of the simple ways you, know, you can start it is, and it would be a retrospective analysis. It, but you, it is but retrospective. You could, right, but it's you, not great. But you could just, you would, could just start something where patients that were treated by medics and patients that weren't. Yeah, right. No medics and, available right. for an ALS 
you know, type patient, and because mm-hmm. that'll be in their chart. Yeah, patient arrived with BLS. No that's ALS a, I available. think that's already starting in some places. They're actually I, starting. I, to look I at think that. it has to. And again, I, what worries me about a study like that, as important as I think it is, is I would worry that the study would be used to weaponize data. Where you say like, well, it shows that this. So we're well, you know, you can weaponize any data. I can make anything look. I can make any data set go a certain way or another way. Right. It all depends on how I look at the data. I mean, I know that there's one organization that is looking at this stuff, and they were able to sell it to their healthcare system that they got a a a resulting one point two or one point something like. A significant drop, don't quote me on the number, a significant drop in their length of stay mm-hmm. by the para, by the people that were treated by paramedics as opposed to not being treated by paramedics. And that was enough for their healthcare system to say, wow. You know, and, like just, that's, and just keep the medic systems the way they are. Absolutely. And so, so that, that's really important. We, that's, I think having more data like that will actually support you know, having look, a looking system. at things like I, I think uh, one of the things that's really big is uh, and I really like people to look at it and I want to start looking at it for for my place is the REM score the rapid emergency medical score right um, and that's what this place was using and uh, they were finding that a one point product uh, one point drop in that score between patient assessment and transfer at the hospital resulted in a significant length of stay reduction or length of acuity that's yeah, that's it that's, that's your that's your that's that's your that's your proof right so if we could find more like that i think that would actually kind of put you know, yeah. a better bow on this debate but we're certainly not going to come to the conclusion for it today it's just it's an interesting topic of discussion that just never really kind of goes away in ems so let us know what you think guys uh we're on all the social media platforms facebook um and instagram at overrun productions over on ems on twitter be sure to, to subscribe on Apple podcast spotify all that other stuff you can find us pretty much everywhere so for the overrun my name is ed bowder i'm dan schwester i'm kevin mazza i'm jess mastercola and i'm mike DiFilippo. And thank you for listening we'll talk to you next time get home safe <laughs>